Hey, everybody. Thank you for having me. You guys can grab a seat. And uh, man, New Zealand was incredible. Uh, we just, well, I just got back with a few of my friends who joined me in New Zealand. And it was absolutely, utterly life-changing. It was actually one of the, the best trips I've ever had. I saw my friends that. Um, we uh, we got to reach tons of Kiwis. I remember one of the one of the events, like, got to speak to over a thousand high school students at once and uh, got to go on TV and national radio and literally a TV station that went on every single uh, New Zealand TV screen. And it was just really cool to see. And then outreaches on top of that. It was really special. And not only the outreaches and ministry, but the, the friend ventures and send ventures. I remember uh, we went up to this like triplet of secret waterfalls under the moonlight and the stars were scintillating like diamonds against the interstellar velvet of inky darkness in outer space, like the spiral arm of the galaxy overhead and the moonlight white on the forest treetops. And it was crazy because there's stars overhead, but then there were all these glowworms in the forest around us. So it looked like eyes of strange, fantastical beasts, like peering out at us through the trees because there were glowworms everywhere. So it was just like stars in the forest and then stars overhead uh, with the pools and waterfalls all around. It was really magical. Uh, no wonder they filmed Lord of the Rings there. It was, we went to Hobbiton, went in Bilbo Baggins, you know, went to Bilbo Baggins Bag End Prime Real Estate and got to go in Hobbit holes and stuff. So it was sick. Anyway, I'm glad I'm here. Uh, we uh, we got to make an impact there. So uh, I love you guys. And actually, could you turn up my mic a little bit? Because I want to preach today. And I'm losing my voice too from so much talking in New Zealand. So uh, let's say a word of prayer and then we'll we'll dive in. Father, I pray that as we study Romans 15 today, that you would encourage us and renew us and strengthen us. And I pray that you would clear our minds and I pray that you'd stir up the soil of our soul so that uh, when your seed is planted, it would germinate and produce 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold fruit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We love you, and we pray that uh, we would cause much fruit, or your spirit would cause much fruit to abound to the glory of God the Father for our good. Uh, and generously spread it to other people for their benefit too. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. We'll look at Romans 15. And uh, what I want to talk to you today about is how to renew your mind. How to renew your mind. You know, the Bible talks a lot about your mind. Of course, we have to talk about the heart. After all, 900 times, the Bible speaks of your heart as the sum seat and center of who you are. It's really the nexus of your emotional existence. In fact, the Bible says the Lord is nigh to the brokenhearted and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. And the Bible says he healeth the brokenhearted and bindeth up their wounds. Jesus in Luke 4.18, quoting Isaiah 61, said that I have come to heal the brokenhearted. So we have to talk about the heart. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. But the truth of the matter is the Bible also talks a ton about your mind. The great Shema doesn't just say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, but also with all your mind. And Jesus said that was the greatest command of all. By the way, when the great Shema, the word Shema in Hebrew means here, when it says, love the Lord your God with all your strength, um, a better translation is love the Lord your God with all of your muchness. 
There's not even a proper word in English, but it's love the Lord with all your muchness, all that you have, love him with all your muchness. You might not have much, but if you have a few loaves and fishes, he can do some pretty magical stuff with that. But it says not only love the Lord your God with all your muchness, your soul, your heart, but also, also your mind. Isaiah 26, three says you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says, I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil. In Matthew 6, five times, Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow. He said, take no thought for tomorrow. The word thought in Greek is marimnan. Uh, It literally means anxious, worrisome, foreboding about the future. So he said, take no thought for tomorrow. Paul the apostle said, put your thoughts on things above, not on things below. One of my favorites is when Paul said, take your thoughts captive. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All through the scriptures, we see the importance of your mind. Proverbs goes so far as to say, this is one of my favorite about your thought life. Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So your identity flows from your neurological activity, according to that verse. What you think determines who you are as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now today, when we talk about meditation, especially in Southern California, San Diego, Los Angeles, it's very in vogue and taboo in the church, but big among hipsters and Gen Z. What you have to remember is meditation, Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind. It's a placidity of negativism and a nirvana of nothingness. But the Bible also talks about meditation, only Hebrew meditation is slightly different from Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind, but Hebrew meditation is about filling your mind. So the book of Psalms, for example, says, I will meditate on your wondrous works. Joshua 1 says, meditate on the law of God, don't turn to the right or to the left, and you will have good success. Psalm 1 says, those who meditate on the law of God will be like trees planted by the rivers of water. Paul said, Philippians 4, 8, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So it's all about filling your mind with the good, the lovely, the true, the just, the law, his wondrous works. So the Bible over and over again is teaching us about our our minds. And what's so interesting about all of this is that um, we're in like the golden age of neuroscience right now. And neuroplasticity is one of the great emerging ideas and ideals that is so sticky on our generation because right now, those who are performing many brain scans are finding that your brain can change. So even if your thoughts tend to run in dark grooves, you can jolt them out. You actually can take your thoughts captive. You actually can renew your mind through neuroplasticity. What that means is through rote and repetition, through continual practice, you can actually develop new thought patterns. So you have 30,000 to 50,000 thoughts neurologically every single day. When's the last time you took time to think about what you're thinking about to get rid of stinking thinking, have an attitude of gratitude and a checkup from the neck up. Because basically you have a lot of thoughts every day. Um, Your brain's actually very small. It's only the size of two fists put together. In your cerebral gray matter, your cranial package, your psychological constitution, your brain consists of 86 billion to 100 billion interconnected neurons. Now, we only know about 2 to 8% of how the brain works, 
but we're finding more and more amazing discoveries about the brain. The first and foremost being neuroplasticity, that you can, in fact, through continual practice, change the wiring of the neural pathways inside of your mind. Uh, Another interesting fact about the brain is that, watch this, when you pray, uh, when you talk intentionally to a loving God, your frontal lobe fires up into its highest intellectual capacity and you actually boost your brain's intelligence by talking intentionally to God. So if you want to get smarter, pray. (laughs) Who knew? Apparently God did. The three best things for your brain are reading. Readers are leaders. Exercise. Exercise unto this life profits little, but exercise unto godliness profits even more. In fact, when you go on three uh, um, 30-minute walks every week, it enlarges your hippocampus and when you eat blueberries too. And your hippocampus is the part of your brain which is the seat of your memory and you uh, reduce Alzheimer's that way. It's amazing. But uh, exercise, and then the third thing is, so reading, exercise, and prayer. Those are the three best things that uh, researchers tell us you can do for your brain, prayer or meditation. So it's amazing what prayer does. By the way, laughing is also helpful. Did you know when you laugh in a healthy way, it actually boosts your brain intelligence? So Jamie mentioned the, what we were singing earlier, Psalm 126 verse 2 said, then was our mouth filled with laughter for they said among the nations, the Lord hath done great things. So it's amazing what happens to your brain when you pray, when you laugh. But here's what's truly incredible to me is that neuroscience is now showing us that different parts of your brain light up when, pe- when, when neurologists do CAT scans on religious people, different parts of the brain light up based on what people believe about God. So for example, one of the things researchers have found is that people who have religion have a stronger sense of identity than non-religious people. They invest prime neurological real estate into their gray matter based on what they think about God when it comes to identity formation. And also watch this, what you think about God when you pray dictates what part of your brain lights up. So for example, people who pray to a God that they believe is angry at them, research has found in CAT scans and brain scans that they have high activity in their amygdala. The amygdala, scientists call it the rat brain. It's the part of your brain that is responsible for fear, anger, stress, and high blood pressure. So again, when the Bible is talking about like, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, When the Bible says, put your thoughts on things above. When the Bible says, take your thoughts captive. When the Bible says, uh, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you as a man thinks in his heart. So is he meditate on what's true? All of these things are super important with your brain because if you think God is angry at you, if that's what you're meditating on when you pray, and a lot of people do that, they go go to church to stay the wrath and fury and anger of 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 a just God, and they think, oh man, I hope God's not angry at me today, so I'm going to go to church to get brownie points, and when I pray, I'm going to try to avert his anger. If that's how you pray to God, you're going to have high stress, high blood pressure, you're going to forgive less quickly, you're going to anger more easily, and you're going to stress more swiftly. Jesus told a very practical analogy to us to illustrate this truth. Um, It's interesting how the most repeated commandment in the Bible is do not fear. Jesus said, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, God wants to bless you. 
You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. He wants to bless you. That's why Jesus was baptized at 30 years old. Because in Jewish culture in the first century, when a man turned 30, he inherited everything his father had. And so Jesus never did a miracle until he turned 30 when he was baptized at 30. Why? Because at 30 was when a man came into his father's inheritance. Jesus comes out of the baptismal water. He inherits the kingdom and then he starts doing all these miracles because in his father's house are many mansions. And he said, your kingdom come to earth as it is above. Fear not, little flock. It is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Romans 8, you're heirs of God, joiners with Christ. You inherit everything I have and I inherit everything my father has because I just turned 30. That's what Jesus could say. So fear not. Your amygdala is not to have a run of the place. It's not to um, determine the order of the day. Your amygdala should shut down when you pray. This is what 1 John 4 says. God is love. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear and love are like antimatter and matter. They cancel each other out. They're mutually exclusive. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, now this is what brain scans have also shown us conversely. If you pray and talk intentionally to a God that you believe is loving, you will develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex. Now that's just a fancy word for the part of your brain that is responsible for focus, concentration, um, consciousness, cognition, and agency in creative thinking. So research tells us, neurologists tell us that 30 minutes after you wake up, so from the time you wake up till 30 minutes afterwards, the first 30 minutes after you wake up, your prefrontal cortex is most active. That's why if you're an artist or a student or you do creative work, you always want to do that if you can in the morning. Because in the morning, that's when your prefrontal cortex is most active. Even if you feel groggy, when you're writing, creative work is done best in the morning. When you're praying, that's why the psalmist said, Early will I seek thee. Jesus rose a great while before the day to seek the Father because that's actually when your prefrontal cortex is most active. But not only that, when you pray to a God you believe is loving, you develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex, which, as I said, boosts your brain intelligence and it gives you better focus and concentration. Listen, everybody has ADD today. Like when people say, I have ADHD, I'm like, join the club. Who doesn't today? We look at our phones once every six minutes, 150 times per day, which triggers a dopamine loop in our brain that causes us to be addicted. When you get texts and likes and notifications, it triggers the same part of your brain that gambling does. That's why it's addictive. So ultimately, here's the thing. Research shows us that when you focus and practice concentrating, you become better at focus and concentration through neuroplasticity, road and repetition and practice. So when you pray to a God you believe is loving, you have greater creative thinking, higher focus, stronger concentration, and more intense cognitive agency. Powerful. But watch this. Not only do you get that benefit from prayer, but when you pray to a God you believe is loving, CAT scans show that you have higher activity in your anterior cingulate cortex. Now that's the part of your brain which is responsible for compassion, for empathy, for feeling safe with God and warm and fuzzy feelings. So do you ever pray and you're like, I just got like a serotonin overflow. I just got the warm fuzzies. Like it tingles down your back. That's because your anterior cingulate cortex lights up and you have 
greater fuzzy feelings. You feel safe with God, serotonin overflow, and you actually have compassion and empathy for other people. Why? Because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. (laughs) Jesus said, te telestai, it is finished. He didn't say almost done. So now Ben has to say, you got to pay. No, he said, te telestai, it is finished. Really cool Bible fun trivia fact. When he said it is finished, the word is telestai in Greek. That word telestai Paul used in Philippians 1.6 when he said the famous verse, the God who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to telestai it. That's what, it, that's what the word in Greek. It's finished or complete. So as surely as Jesus carried his cross to its completion, so too the Father who began a good work in you will be faithful to telestai and finish it until the day of Christ. Very cool. But Jesus said, it's finished. He's praying on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When you pray to a God you believe is loving, you will actually love other people more because you image whatever God you worship. You image whatever deity you serve. And so um, Jesus told another great parable about this. Jesus taught us the power of forgiveness and how to change our brain to forgive. Because listen, anybody who's on the Jesus path will suffer a major betrayal in their life. I didn't know this years ago. Like I thought, you know, people would just treat me pretty good for the most part. No. If you're walking the Jesus path, get ready for a Judas. Did you know that's where we get our phrase kiss of death in like boxing matches? Oh, he planted the kiss of death on that guy. It's when Judas planted the kiss of death on Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. That's where that phrase comes from. And so anyone who's on the Jesus path, like Jesus suffering Judas's treachery will suffer a major betrayal in their life. So don't be surprised. Jesus told a parable about how we can change our brains to start forgiving people and activate that interior singlet cortex through prayer. Remember that story Jesus told of a master who gave his servant 10,000 talents and the guy squandered it and he finds his friend who owes him a hundred denarii and he grabs him by the throat. Back then that was called apagogi. In Greek, it was civilian arrest grabbed him by the throat and said, pay me every last denarius that you owe me. And then he threw his friend in prison because he couldn't pay the debt. The master hears about this, calls in his servant and says, I just forgave you 10,000 talents. How could you not forgive your friend a hundred denarii? Because of that, I'm going to throw you into prison and you'll be handed over to the torturers until you pay back every last cent. Jesus said, so will the father do to you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. I love how loving Jesus is that he would threaten us into forgiveness. He's like, you will forgive or you're going to be tortured. And it's true. You're tortured. Your amygdala has a run of the place and you're just tortured if you don't forgive. But here's what's interesting about that parable to me. We don't live in that economic, socioeconomic environment. Like we don't think in terms of denarius, talents. We don't think in that kind of currency rhetoric or syntax. Like we think in terms of dollars and checks and cents and Bitcoin. But back then, back then, Jesus' first century audience would have understood how ridiculous his analogy was. And that's why it's so brilliant. is because it was utterly excessive, extra, extravagant, hyperbolic, dramatized, melodramatic. Like this example Jesus used was absurd. Here's why. This guy was forgiven 10,000 talents. And after being forgiven himself, he wouldn't forgive his buddy, a hundred denarii. This was absurd. And here's why. If you broke up the debts into small coins, small change. The 10,000 talent debt, do you, know, do you know how big that debt would be if you broke it up into small coins? 
I believe it's R.A. Glover who did the mathematics on this. It's nuts. This is, this is an actual fact. This, let me give you the exact numbers. It would take an army of 8,600 men, each carrying a 60-pound sack full of coins, and if each man was separated one yard apart, they would form a line five miles long. That's how many people it would take to carry 10,000 talent debt if you broke it up into small change. 8,600 men carrying a 60-pound sack worth of coins forming a line five miles long, separated each man at one yard apart. That's how much he was forgiven. It was an obscene, absurd amount. And yet the hundred denarii that this man wouldn't in turn forgive, if you broke that up into small change, it could fit inside a pocket. Literally a pocket. Literal pocket change. Now, don't get me wrong, 100 denarii was still a lot. It was about a third or a fourth of your salary. A denarius was a day's wage. The guy owed 100 of them. It was a lot. Like, imagine somebody owed you, you know, a third or a fourth of your year's salary. That is a lot of money. You'd say pay up. But it is mere pocket change, literally, literal pocket change when you break it down to small coins compared to 8,600 men carrying 60-pound sacks forming line five miles long. Are you tracking with me? So what Jesus is saying is he's not mitigating or lessening the hurt that others have done to you. He's just saying it's pocket change in comparison to how much God's willing to forgive you of all the debt you've ever owed. Like that your sins and iniquities he's removed from you as far as the East is from the West. God's love is endless. His mercy, the Bible says over and over again, endures forever. Psalm 22 prophesied that when Jesus was crucified, not one bone in his body would be broken. Why? Because bones produce blood marrow. So blood is produced by bones. You have 206 bones in your body. That's where the blood marrow comes from. So not one of Jesus's bones were broken. Why? Because the blood factory is never shut down or broken. The blood keeps flowing endlessly. There's, you never run out of blood. You never run out of, in Romans 5, 1 says his blood signifies redemption. You never run out of grace. You never run out of his mercy. Which, by the way, and this is super sick, Remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Romans 5.1 says that, that his blood signifies redemption. Watch this. And Romans also says that Jesus is the last Adam. So the last Adam, his blood signifies redemption. Where was the first place the last Adam blood? Where was the first place, the first mention in regards to where the last Adam blood? It was from the sweat of his brow. Remember, he sweat great drops of blood. It's a medical condition called hematidosis where the capillaries in your face burst due to extreme stress and you start sweating blood through your pores. So Jesus is sweating great drops of blood from the sweat of his brow. Why? Because he's the last Adam. Where is he? The Garden of Gethsemane. Why all the parallels? Because Genesis says the first Adam was expelled from a garden to work by the, the sweat of his brow. So the first Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow, and that was his curse. So Jesus did a curse reverse, and the first place the last Adam bled in the garden was from the sweat of his brow as the last Adam to reverse the curse and redeem man's work because the word Adam means human or mankind. He redeems mankind. (laughs) So basically, when you realize, hey, not one bone is broken, there's an endless supply of blood. The bones produce the blood marrow. It's never broken down. His mercy endures forever. It's always redeeming. 
then I pull from that reservoir of love and I give it to other people. Listen, you can't draw from an empty tank. You can't draw from an empty reservoir. You can't draw from an empty well. It's only when you know how much God loves you and you pray to that God that your interior singlet cortex lights up and you can start forgiving everyone else. But you really have to believe that God is loving in order to love other people. Like that's why John continuously tried to get after God is love. Little children, love one another. Out of the 613 precepts of the Jewish Torah, Jesus said the most important is love God. And the second is like to do it. Love your neighbor. On this hangs all the law and the prophets. Readers Digest 101. You want to know what the whole Bible is about? Jesus said all scripture testifies of me. And here's what I think it's about. Love. <laughs> so how do we do this? By renewing our mind. Praying to a God we believe is loving. Father, forgive them. They know what they do. And then you can actually forgive other people when you let God love on you. So we just combined theology brain neuroscience and, uh, and biblical texts in regards to practicality, like how to forgive, how to have better concentration, how to have better focus and, uh, turn off that amygdala rat brain. And that was just the intro. So I better hurry really quick. Turn with me to Romans 15. Are you guys doing okay so far? Okay. Oh goodness. I don't remember what time. Oh, this service is supposed to end. I think, uh, I think we're on time. Well, on time is totally relative. Romans 15, four. That's why I love Albert Einstein. He just showed the elasticity and relativity of time, that time is from your point of view. Romans 15, four. You're like, please don't go too long. I won't, I won't, I won't. Romans 15, four. Uh, we're just going to totally renew our mind today how we think about God. <clears throat> for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patient and comfort, patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We'll stop there and we'll continue, but let's really break this down. Uh, there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, right? 66 books written by 40 different authors. 14 of those books were written by Paul. And Paul was often in prison when he wrote. So, I mean, the guy got canned more than tuna. <clears throat> he said, I'm in prison more frequently than anybody. And yet, like if you look at Romans 12, 12, he says, rejoice in hope. In this text, he says, the Bible was written to give you hope. This is a really important Pauline theological hermeneutical text because Paul literally says, the reason we wrote the Bible is to give you hope. Now, pastors, theologians, speakers, commentators, teachers, they can tell you why they speculate the Bible was written, but I'd rather hear like Paul tell me why the Bible was written. After all, he was the most prolific author in the Bible as far as chronology and number of books written. And he literally says, actually, we wrote the Bible with the express teleologic purport and purpose of giving you hope, which means if you walk away from a Bible study with less hope rather than more hope, it's a giant exercise of missing the point. There will never be a message that I give that's not hope-oriented. Like, I'm never going to say, hey guys, sorry, today's a hard message. Jesus said, no, my yoke isn't hard, it's easy. I'm never going to say, hey guys, I have a really heavy message. Why? Because Jesus said, my burden isn't heavy, it's light. What does Paul say here? These things that were written for were written for our learning that through patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have hope. Like it's not a book about blues, it's a book about good news. That's why you always have to keep this verse in mind and fly 30,000 feet up and not take a text out of its context because if you subtract a text from its context, you're left with a con rather than a text and a con rather than a pro and it'll be a con artist thieving you of your knowledge and tricking you out of correct understanding. Did you see what we just did there? 
So <laughs> fun is fundamental. Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. He causes the dead to raise, the, the lame to leap, the blind. Hello, are you, is this thing on? <laughs> he causes, Jesus puts the fun back in funeral. He causes the dead to raise, the blind to see, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear, the lost to be found. Like, Hope is not a message you move on from. It's a message you move deeper into. The good news, the gospel, is not something that, that's elementary. It's something that we continuously explore. This, this Bible is a book about hope. Um, 77% of the Bible is either narrative or poem. It's a narrative arc that contains so much poetry. Uh, less than 20% of the Bible is written in like teaching or letter form. And when you're talking about direct commandments, you're talking in the single digits. I mean, this is not a rule book. It is a hope book. And that's what Paul says. Listen, the narrative arc of the scripture when you fly 30,000 feet up is a tapestry that should always weave a picture of hope, sacred optimism, Jesus, joy, holy happiness, calm delight. The Bible says that Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows, which means he was the happiest person ever lived. People are like, wait a minute, Ben. Trust me, I've heard every B clause. They're like, wait, I have an apology for why Jesus was miserable. He said, I love this one. Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows. Of course he was a man of sorrows, but what is that quoting when he gets his beard plucked out on the cross? Yeah, I'd be pretty sad too if I had to get crucified on a cross. Jesus wasn't saying you won't go through hard times and everything is just unicorns shooting rainbows out of their eyes as you dine on Pegasus steak. No, of course you're going to go through hard times, but watch this. Even when he was the man of sorrows that was specifically prophesying about the cross, Hebrews 12 says there was joy set before him. When he endured the cross, Hebrews 12 too, even at the cross, he had joy set before him. You're getting me excited. And then people are like, well, no, Ben, you have to be miserable because Jesus said you have to carry your cross every day. That's because I'm so passionate about like, not just reading the Bible literally, but literally, like you got to know the history behind the text you're reading when you're going to start like veering off the path. For example, let's just take that one anomaly. When Jesus said in all four gospels, take up your cross people say, well, that means you're supposed to be miserable. Actually, that's not what it meant. In the first century, when Jesus was 11 years old, there was a rebel named Judas the Galilean who reigned, uh, uh, pardon me, he uh, stormed the Roman armory at Sephoris, which was four miles away from Nazareth, which was Jesus's hometown and stomping grounds. So Judas the Galilean, he raids and storms Sephoris, the Roman armory. The Romans dealt swiftly and summarily in judgment against him to establish the Pax Romana, they literally crucified Judas and 2,000 of the rebels along the roadside as a sign that you do not rebel against Rome. So they were crucified on crosses. To be crucified back then meant that the Roman Empire had beaten you into submission and killed you. So watch this. When Peter takes out his sword to chop off Malchus's ear, Jesus says, put away your sword. Remember, Peter kept trying to divert Jesus from the cross. He said, you need not be crucified. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Like, how was work today, honey? Oh, well, Jesus called me Satan. But other than that, it was pretty dope. (laughs) Like, you do not want to hear Jesus call you Lucifer. But basically, get behind me, Satan. I have to go to the cross. Jesus, every time he predicted his crucifixion, he also predicted his resurrection. Three times in the book of Mark, he like predicted his upcoming death. But here's what's interesting. Carrying a cross was not a message about how to be miserable 101. Carrying a cross was an anti-violence message. You got to remember, the Jews were occupied by the Romans. So taking up a cross was juxtaposed and antithetical and an antonym to taking up 
a sword. So you had an option. Either you could join the Sakari dagger bears and the zealots, one of which was Jesus' disciple. Remember Simon the zealot? The zealots were a political revolutionary group that teamed up with the Sakari dagger bears. They would hide in caves and take out daggers and stab Romans or Roman sympathizers in the marketplace, hide their dagger in their cloak. Ever heard the phrase cloak and dagger? And then they would go disappear in the masses like secret agents. One of those guys was Jesus's follower. That's why it's so interesting, the dynamic of having Matthew, the tax collector who worked for the Romans and another guy who's a zealot who killed Romans or who wanted to. And so no wonder they were fighting a lot. But the Christ who unites them is greater than the differences and political uh, aspersions that divide them that they cast on each other. So watch this. This is super interesting. So Jesus says, take up a cross. Why did he specifically have to say, tell no man that I am the Christ? Like for a while, before Jesus says, go out into all the world and tell the good news, he says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Why? Because they had a totally wrong idea of what it meant to be the Christ. They thought that Jesus was going to carry a sword and overthrow the heel of the Romans. That's what the Jews were expecting. Because the Roman boot was on the Jewish neck. They were expecting a violent, political, subversive revolutionary who would be a nationalistic Jew fighting as a patriot for Israel like the Maccabees. So when Jesus comes and says, actually, don't take up a sword, take up a cross, they're like, wait, did he just tell me to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give my tunic too, and take up a cross rather than my sword? Do you see the context there? Taking up a cross has nothing to do with don't have joy, rather be miserable. No, deny yourself the desire for vengeance and every day take up a cross. That's what it means to follow me to fulfill the great Shema, which is love. So when you're reading the Bible, you got to remember verse four of Romans 15. The scriptures were written to give you hope. Every Bible study we walk away from, we should walk away with more hope. Are you tracking with me so far? This is a big verse because Paul like gives us a synopsis of what the Bible's all about. Um, Look at, oh, there's so much more I want to say, but I got to hurry. Look at verse 12 as he continues this theme of hope, this Word hope is the theme and thesis thread that runs through the treatise of truth. Look at verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him, the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope, verse 13, fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read verse 4 again. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So hope, hope, hope. We need hope. Um, I love what Paul says here that he is the God of hope so we Gentiles should sing. I love listening to Pete and the band do worship. It sounds like angels pouring honey down your ear. It's just beautiful. But why do we sing? Why do we sing? Again, the Bible talks a lot about singing and our hope should manifest itself in singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul said. Psalm 150, praise the Lord with the, with the clanging cymbals and the stringed instruments. Why does it talk about music? Because God actually wired your brain to love music. Remember when we were talking a little bit ago about the prefrontal cortex? Do you know why? Have you ever wondered why you always tap your foot when you hear music? or why you snap, or clap your hands, or just move a little bit, and you don't even think about it. It's not even a conscious thing. It's because music, all of music, all of music, we're talking about Bach and Handel's 
composing and rap music. We're talking about like Indian sitars and country music. Although I have no idea why anyone listens to country. But basically, no matter what musical genre you're talking about, all of music is based on a beat or repetition or rhythm. So all of music is based on rhythm, which usually is composed of a beat. And so that beat or that rhythm is um, absolutely appealing to your prefrontal cortex. Why? Your prefrontal cortex loves to make predictions and be right. So you love to predict the next beat, and that's why you tap your foot. Your prefrontal cortex snaps your fingers or claps your hands or moves your body because it's your brain's way of celebrating its own successful prediction of the next beat and the next rhythm. <laughs> so God like actually wired your brain to love music. That's why Paul says, hey, listen, sing, sing, have hope. Like This should be a fun thing. This should be a fun thing. It really should. God doesn't endure you. He enjoys you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, the Lord rejoices over you with joy. The meaning of life. Since we're here, let's just go there. Let's not be all trouble, no base. Like, let's not just skim off the top. Let's plumb the deeps. Why are you on this mode of dust hurtling in a sunbeam at 67,000 miles per hour? What are you doing here as a featherless biped on this planet, hanging fuzzy dice from your mirror and building fires? Like, why are humans here? What are we doing? The meaning of your life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. I do believe bars have been veritably dropped just now. The meaning of life is to enjoy the joy of being enjoyed by God. Even the catechism has understood that. The meaning of our life is to enjoy God forever. Like God doesn't endure you. He enjoys you. He loves you. He rejoices over thee with joy. He rejoices over thee with singing. And so we should sing back to him. Why are we singing to him? Because he's singing over us, Zephaniah says. So we're to sing, oh, you Gentiles, all of you who hope in him. And then this is where we're going to really kind of descend the plane. But look at verse 13. It actually calls God the God of hope. So verse 13, Paul uses this moniker and sobriquet. Now the God of hope, the God of hope, the God of hope. Listen, how you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. You don't have to behave to get saved. You just believe to receive because on your worst day with God, you're better off than on your best day without God. And when you're going through your worst, God's planning his best. So he's the God of hope. Now look at what he goes on to say. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. Look at that word fill. I hate it when people, it drives me bonkers and they're like, are you a glass half empty pessimist or a glass half full optimist? And I say, I'm a glass totally full kind of guy. David said, my cup runneth over. Because even scientifically, the glass is half filled with hydrogen and oxygen and the other half of the glass is filled with nitrogen and oxygen, even if it's half filled with water. So I agree with David, even scientifically, miscellaneous fact, my cup runneth over. He wants to fill you with joy and peace. Joy and peace, Irene and Karen Greek, they became popular names in the first century. Um, Peace appears 80 times altogether in the New Testament. Every single New Testament author used the word peace. Joy, like the joy of the Lord is your strength. I give you a joy that no man can take from you. In the presence of the Lord, there's fullness of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. I give you, um, uh, uh, come enter into the joy of the Lord. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Like these themes of peace and joy fill the New Testament and they were meant to fill you as well. May the God of hope, look at that word, fill. Fill you with all joy and peace and believing. That what? Look at the last phrase. That you may abound in, say it out loud. Hope. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he starts off the verse by saying, now the God of hope, and then he ends the verse by saying, cause you, cause you to abound in hope. So he defines um, God as personifying hope and embodying hope, but then he says, you also are to abound in hope. Because how you perceive God dictates how you receive from God. Remember our brain studies earlier? Like if you think God's loving, you'll be loving. If you think God's angry, you'll be angry. So too, if you see God as the God of hope, you're going to abound in hope. And that's why a lot of people don't have hope because they don't think, they don't truly believe that God is for them. They think, oh no, God's grumpy at me today. Paul didn't say he's the God of hope if... No, this is his fundamental, ultimate reality, the principle behind which you cannot go, the source of the universe, the prime mover. The reality is this, your God, his identity, his, his identity is that he's the God of hope. He will remain the same yesterday, today, and forever. You cannot change that about God. That's why the Bible says God is light. Did you know that the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, is the one stable element in all of, in all of the universe? scientists tell us. You cannot go faster than the speed of light. Otherwise, you travel back in time, which is impossible because it has causation um, paradox. Light at 186,000 miles per second is the one stable element in existence, and light exists everywhere. Light exists in your spouse sitting next to you. Did you know you actually glow due to metabolic reactions within the body? It's just your glow is 1,000 times weaker than the naked eye can register. So you can wake up in the morning and you can say, honey, you glow. Your honey might have bedhead, but your spouse still glows. Technically and scientifically, you have light. When Jesus said you're the light of the world, that's even true scientifically. Just if you go to England, don't say honey, you look like a or don't don't say honey, you look like a million pounds if you go to England. You can say in English, you look like a million bucks. Okay, you'll get it on the way home. Anyways. I kind of messed that joke up anyway, so it doesn't matter. Okay. So <laughs> I'm a little tired from New Zealand. Okay. God is light. There are 4 million photons per square meter. Like light is even in dark matter, black holes, uh, dark energy. All of existence contains light, even if you can't see it. And light is the one stable element in existence. That's why the apostle John said, God is light. He dwells in unapproachable light. What does that mean? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one constant, just like the speed of light. He's omnipresent, just like light. He's everywhere, even in the valleys that appear to be the darkest. Why? Because he's the God of hope, even when you're going through the worst times. So I want to close, since we've been talking about the importance of like understanding who God is for your mind. Knowing he's the God of hope, okay, great. How will this change my mind? You got to go right into the core of God's identity. If he's called as a title, the God of hope, what's his actual name? Well, the Old Testament tells us the name of God. Does anybody remember what the Old Testament name of God is as we're thinking today about his identity? What's the Old Testament name of God? Say it out loud if you know it. Yahweh. Now, we pronounce it that way, and we even write it Y-A-H-W-E-H, but that's actually not the correct spelling in in the original etymological Hebrew, Greek rhetoric and syntax, it's just consonants, no vowels. There's no A-E-I-O-U. In fact, Hebrews generally didn't write with vowels. You just would write in consonants and you were expected to pronounce A-E-I-O-U when you spoke audibly and verbally, but in written form, you just had consonants. So the name of God was written in four consonants. Does anyone know how to spell the name of God in Hebrew? Like what the correct consonants are? Y- 
H-W-H. This is called the ineffable tetragrammaton, which is very fancy theological language for the unspeakable name. You weren't, you weren't allowed to speak the name of God. Why? <laughs> this is dope. I'm not going to lie. Buckle up. <laughs> the ancient rabbis tell us that the name of God was something that you didn't speak. It was something that you breathed. The ancient rabbis tell us that the reason the consonants YHWH were chosen is because those are the only consonants that, when spoken correctly, you cannot pronounce them with your tongue, nor can you do so with your lips closed. When you're pronouncing YHWH correctly, it literally was meant to imitate and replicate breath. So the technical correct way to pronounce the name of God is this. It was meant to mimic your breath. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, the word for spirit is ruach. And in the New Testament, the word in Greek for spirit is pneuma. But the word can also be translated breath. The word spirit can also be translated breath. In every major language, the word for spirit and breath is the same word. So how did Jesus give the Holy Spirit to his disciples in the book of Acts? He breathed on them. And Acts says that's when they received the Spirit. So I love it when people are like, I haven't prayed in a long time and Paul told me to pray without ceasing. That's impossible. Are you sure? All through the day, you want to know what you've been doing? The Spirit or breath praying through you with breaths and groanings that cannot be uttered, Romans says. Maybe you've been praying without ceasing. And maybe you die not when you stop breathing. Maybe you die when you stop saying the name of God. Paul said, in him, we live and breathe and have our being. (laughs) I love when atheists are like, let me prove to you through a posteriori and a priori didactic logic and apology why there is no God. (laughs) The very breath that they're pulling to argue against God is like cognitive dissonance. Why did God change Abram's name to Abraham? Sarai to Sarah. Because he put the consonants of Yahweh into their name. Gave them a new identity. Animated by his spirit, his breath. Those who are in Christ are new creatures. The word creatures in Greek is species. You're a new species. You go from homo sapien to hopo sapien. I like to say. Amazing. So when you say, where is God when my heart is hurting? That's like saying, what shape is yellow? God's as close as your very breath. Where are you, God? You're shaking your fists, but really your fists are just tiny antennae, receptive to heavenly radio frequencies, and he's going to interrupt your regularly scheduled programming. Where are you, God? God says, I was so close to you all along. You didn't even know I was here. Jacob woke up and he said, the Lord was here and I knew it not. You're going to look back on your life. Now let's just come to the surface because we went pretty deep today. You're going to look back at your life and you're going to say, God was there and I knew it not. And 
He was the God of hope all along. He was the first word I ever said. He was my last word at my deathbed. He's as near to me as my very breath. And right now, just bearing my heart with you, like this is something me and my family have desperately needed. We went through a lot of, you know, as a family. My dad's first wife died in a car accident. Um, I went through a romantic heartbreak a couple years ago that left me devastated. I went through 10 years of chronic depression, was suicidal. God rescued me. He healed me from depression. That's why I travel all around the world every week just speaking messages of hope because this saved my life. If you found the cure to cancer, wouldn't you travel and tell everyone about it? I believe the God of hope is the cure. I really believe this. He healed me. He can heal anybody. When I was a kid and I closed this story, my sister Jessica was joking with my dad and my family. She's like, dad, I can't date anyone. And my dad said, why not? And she said, well, according to your standards, I can't marry anybody because you always tell me, dad, that I have to marry somebody who's going to lead me spiritually and who's godlier than I am. She's like, that's impossible because I'm the godliest person I know. (laughs) She was just joking, saying it tongue in cheek. She really was incredibly godly. The next day when my sister Jessica died in a car accident, my brother delivered the news to my family and he said, Jessica has found her man. She's found her man. And I always wondered what it would be like to see my sister as the bride of Christ with her mom in heaven as well, walking down the wedding aisle as the bride of Christ. My dad tells an amazing story that um, in all four gospels, we're told that a woman washed Jesus' feet with her perfume, with her hair, and with her tears. Remember that verse in Psalm 56, which says, you have collected all my tears in your bottle? Back in ancient Jewish culture, women did that. They collected their tears in a tear bottle. Their tears of sadness and their tears of gladness. And then when they got married, they would give it to their husband. It's their most, one of their most precious possessions. Like, I give you my heart. When you handed your husband your tear bottle, it was terribly romantic. It's like, listen, I give you my heart. That's what they would do when they got married. So when she was washing Jesus' feet with her hair and her perfume, what she was probably doing is she was dumping her tear bottle on Jesus' feet, thereby saying, I'm the bride of Christ. That was pretty awesome. My dad came up with that. I thought that was sick. But our families cried a lot of tears, but as the bride of Christ, we know that one day, you know, he will wipe all tears from our faces for death has been swallowed up in victory. So a couple weeks ago, my brother died and went to heaven as well. And it's been like the hardest season of our lives uh, in many regards. And we've had amazing friends who've brought us joy and uh, an incredibly strong family that I'm so thankful for. But the song that came on as I was there with my brother at his deathbed, it was the last few moments of his life. The radio was shuffling random songs and we didn't know it was going to be the last moments of his life necessarily. We knew he was, it was coming to an end as he was battling the last stages of colon cancer the song that happened to come on the radio was this really obscure song by a band called The Cry from the 1990s. And the song was Take My Hand and Walk. That was the same song that played at my sister's memorial service. So whenever I hear that song, I think of my sister Jessie. And when that song, that, not, it's not a pop, it's like a uh, relatively unknown song, played on the radio, 
randomly shuffled onto the radio. And that was one of the last songs my brother ever heard. My dad looked up at me across my brother's deathbed. He's like, do you realize what song's playing? I said, of course. That's from Jessica's memorial service. And the song is Take My Hand and Walk. And I picture with one hand, God taking my sister's hand. Isaiah says, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. My dad always taught us that verse growing up as kids. I will take you with my, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I picture with one hand, he takes Jessica and walks her down the wedding aisle. And with the other hand, he takes my brother, my brother's hand and walks him down the aisle. Somebody commented on my social media, your brother has graduated. And I picture God walking with my brother down the aisle of graduation saying, you've graduated. Well done, good and faithful servant. The hope that I'm talking to you about is not just head knowledge. The hope that I'm talking to you about is not motivational speak. The hope I'm talking to you about is life or death. Because it's one thing to think about hope when things are good. It's another thing when you go through tragedy after tragedy and you say, do I believe this? And I've had to do that in my own heart. Do I really believe this? And I believe it with everything in me. That our Lord is the God of hope. I believe with everything in me that these things that were written before time were written for our learning that we might have hope. So with the Gentiles, we sing with hope because our Lord is the God of hope. He's good. He's good. He's good. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord, that you turn our sorrow into joy, that weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you guys stand with me? And we're going to close in one last song. We're going to say, listen, we have enough Eeyores in the world. We need more Tiggers. We do. People are going to count it all joy, even in tribulations. Our fiery trials do not burn us. They forge us. And God is a consuming fire who never burns what we are. He only burns what we are not. He works all things together for the good, as my brother Peter John so beautifully said. Not all things are good, but all things work together for the good because truly God is good. So we have reason to rejoice. Listen, even when we die, Nietzsche said, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But I think we should say, even if it kills you, it makes you stronger because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have hope in this life. We have life after the grave. We have every reason for hope and to sing. Um, Also, I forgot to mention... I wrote about some of this stuff in my new book, Optimist which will be in bookstores everywhere next week. So I'm super excited. If you want to pre-order it today, I'll be right there in the foyer. If you'd like to read about some of this stuff in slower depth, because uh, I talk fast, because my brain, my thoughts, like they pile up on each other like a traffic jam. And if I don't get them out, there's just a bunch of accidents and I lose them all. So I have to like get them out before I forget my thoughts. But if you want to go a little slower and read about this stuff, uh, you can pre-order Optimisfits. None of the money will go to me. Every purchase that you um, do for Optimisfits, the royalties go back into Hope Generation. So you're actually supporting the message of hope. That's where the money's going, which is really cool. So um, we're selling bookmarks. And by buying the bookmark, you've pre-ordered the book. So it'll just get shipped to your house uh, when you get that bookmark. So if you'd like to do that, I'll be right back there afterwards in the foyer available for that. And I just want to tell you guys, I love you so much. Rob has been such an amazing friend to me. And uh, just getting to come here and minister over the years and uh, see you guys has always brought such encouragement to my soul. And I love you. And I'm glad there's a bunch of hope dealers in San Diego because we have enough dope dealers in the world. We need more hope dealers. Can I get an amen? Okay, let's worship together.